1: Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have someone with me today who puts the special in special guest co-hosts. It's the co-creator of Writer Types himself,
2: Mr. S.W. Loudon. Welcome back, Steve. Oh, Eric, thanks so much. I, I don't know what happened. I've been trying to log in for the last 18 months. Like, what's been happening? <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I felt like
1: for the past, like, 50 episodes or so, you've been very quiet. <laughs>
2: I felt like that's what you always wanted. And so I was just trying to give you your wish because I love you that much, (laughs) Eric. But uh, really, it was a computer (laughs) issue. I've literally been at my computer in my little man shed in the backyard for 18 months trying to log in.
1: (laughs) Well, it is good to hear your voice and and it's it's good to see you again. Uh, And I want to talk about your latest nonfiction project, because you are really killing it in the nonfiction music space, as they say. The latest one, it's up for pre-order now. It's called Forbidden Beat Perspectives on Punk Drumming. And, you know, if I were to think of anyone in the world to edit a collection with that title, it would have to be you. So tell us how this project came about.
2: Thanks, man. And thank you for your amazing essay in the collection about DC hardcore and post-punk. It is fantastic and uh, really displays all of your deep knowledge about the music that came from that scene. So I, I can't thank you enough for being part of it.
1: Oh, well, no, thanks for having me. Anytime I get to talk about all my favorite bands, then yeah, why not?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, you and I uh, talked about music a lot uh, throughout the years and all the various episodes on this podcast. And obviously one of the things you and I always connected about was our our punk rock backgrounds and our shared love of punk music. I happen to be a drummer and I read, as you know, a lot of uh, nonfiction music books, bios, essay collections, deep dives into scenes. And what I started noticing was there weren't any books that I could find that were specifically about punk drumming Um, Mm -hmm. and I kept looking for them and I would find great biographies. I would find great autobiographies, but I just wasn't finding the book that was sort of looking Mm -hmm. at punk rock from the perspective of behind the drum set. Because in my estimation, 99% of the time, you can't have great punk bands without great drummers, right? It's just that they yes. go hand in hand for the most part. I just started thinking about that. I talked to Tyson Cornell at Rare Bird Books. Obviously he's a punk musician. He really loved the idea. And I just started putting my feelers out and contacting basically, is the greatest thing in the world. I was just basically contacting my heroes and going, hey, will yeah. you be in my book? I love you. Well, I,
1: you've I mean, established yourself as quite the rock journalist these days. You're flinging out articles, you're doing, you know, take, taking it upon yourself to do these deep dives of the stuff that really interests you. But in a way, this is kind of getting back to your roots in writing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I went to journalism school um, and, uh, you know, I was very arts and entertainment focused. I wrote a lot of music reviews because I was a musician, am a musician. Um, that's what I did in college. That's what I did after college. Um, and then I worked actually as an editor at a newspaper in my hometown for a few years in my 20s. And then I signed a record deal and kind of like left my journalism career and and pursued music professionally. And then I pursued writing. Um, And eventually I started just finding myself gravitating more and more to writing about music again, really leveraging my journalism background. I wanted to like talk about music, but I wanted to talk about it like a journalist. And so the great thing is there's lots of places you can publish these days without gatekeepers. And so I just started throwing my articles out places and and uh, raising my hand to co-edit books and getting to know people in this community. And it's it's been a lot of fun, if nothing else. And I'm I'm really proud so far of the body of work I've been able to create.
1: Well, since you left the show, you've definitely been very busy. You've also got the Power Pop Heist novellas. So you still got one foot in crime fiction as well. What is it about us, Steve, that we
2: can't slow down? Mm. <laughs> well... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you maybe uh, right now are winning the can't slow down race if I'm being honest about it, because at a certain point I had to hit the eject button on writer types because I was just taking on (laughs) too much and I, there literally was not enough time in, in the day or the week. So, I mean, I would actually flip that back on you. Like you've not slowed down at all. If anything, you've stepped on the gas with submitting short stories and, and getting stuff published and, you know, continuing to do this podcast and, pursuing all the passion projects that you have as well. So how do you do it? It's fear of death. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. That's all it is. (laughs) I'm glad we settled that. Uh, Hey, Steve, do you remember when we interviewed Lee Child? I do remember that. I think of that uh, very fondly. What a cool dude.
1: Yeah, well, I got to interview Lee Child again, and this time I also got to speak with Andrew Grant, writing as Andrew Child, since he took over the Jack Reacher books. And it was really great to talk to both brothers about, at the same time about the brand new Reacher book, Better Off Dead. It's a fascinating process that they've gone through, handing over the, the the reins of this incredibly popular series from brother to brother. I have to ask him, if you ever decide to fully retire from crime fiction, do, do I get the rights to your old characters?
2: Are you you telling me you're my brother? <laughs> no, but I always felt like we were kind of like brothers. I don't have any brothers, so you're as close as I get. Okay, well, then you can have the Power Pop Heist. They're all yours, buddy. Run with it.
3: Well,
1: welcome, gentlemen, to both of you. Uh, Better Off Dead is the latest Jack Reacher novel and the second collaboration between you two. Now, Lee, when we last spoke, I was so intrigued by something you said. You said that the first line of every Reacher book never changes. Once it's down on paper, that's it. And the first line of this one is, if I may read, the stranger got into position under the streetlight at 11 p.m. as agreed. And I want to know, does this rule
4: still apply now that Andrew is writing the books? Well, you're going to have to ask my co-writer that because this was a very intriguing uh, genesis to this particular novel. Better Off Dead started out uh, in a way that Procedurally, I was not expecting because what happened was Andrew got an idea, and like a lot of writers, you got to start playing with it. And did that entire first chapter kind of in secret, you know? He he was just trying something out, and he emailed it to me, and I thought it was it was wonderful, just a fantastic first chapter, and it just filled me with enthusiasm for the rest of the book because if you get a great start, then. It it's gets easier after that. And so the first line, I don't know. He might have written it 10 times. He might have written it only once.
1: We'll have
5: to ask him. Okay, so,
1: so Andrew, was it a mandate when you took over that you have to keep the first line intact?
5: Not so much that we have to start this way. I mean, the the method, you know, the the no outlining, the making every decision kind of instinctively and organically as we go, wasn't so much of a mandate, but it was the way that I knew Lee worked. And I wanted to work the same way because I want to come up with the same product. So it seemed sensible to me that uh, if I want it to look the same and sound the same, I need to work the same. You know, it seemed crazy to think I'm going to get the same result if I do it in a different different way. But um, with this, once I came up with the first line, it didn't change. What did slightly change in my head, though, was that when I came up with the idea, I was actually going to start it somewhere else. I was going to start it where the, the kind of the next chapter starts. And then I don't know where it came from. You know how you sometimes just get these ideas. It just was blindingly obvious to me, no, that's the wrong place to start. This is where you've got to start. And once I had that revelation, it flowed really fast.
4: The genius of that opening chapter, though, is that we don't know who this stranger is. And we sort of think, well, it's Reacher. Got to be, right? This is Reacher. And then, you know, these four guys turn up unauthorized and you think, yeah, great, this is Reacher. We assume... And then at the end of the chapter, we're kind of hoping it wasn't Risha. It's a brilliant tease for the book, and I was thrilled with it. I was sitting right here, actually, when my phone dinged and the email of this chapter came in. I remember it really well. I I read it on my phone. I couldn't even be bothered to go upstairs and use my regular computer. I read it on my phone, and I thought, oh, my God, this is going to kill people.
1: So, Andrew, it's got to be the biggest challenge of this to keep – some of your authorial voice, and yet also to assimilate into the Reacher voice. I mean, has that truly been the biggest hurdle to overcome with this whole handoff?
5: Absolutely, Eric, you've nailed it. You know, understanding the character, knowing the character, that's something that didn't happen overnight. That's something that I kind of had a 25-year apprenticeship with, really, because I was the first person to read a Reacher book. You know, I read Killing Floor when it was still written in pencil. And every year past that, you know, every time Lee and I got together, whenever we hung out, if we went to a baseball game, if we went to a museum, whatever we were doing, we were constantly riffing off, you know, made-up stuff. We'd be saying, oh, what would Reacher do about this? What would Reacher do about that? So understanding the character, I thought, I felt was something. something that had evolved over a long period of time. But what was absolutely going to be more of a challenge was when I put down those adventures and those thoughts and those deductions and everything that Reacher loves onto the page, how was I going to make it sound the same? Because, you know, Lee and I have always had uh, the, the shared belief that really it's not about the author at all. It's about the character. What we want is for people to by the, the new Reacher, not the new Lee Child, not the new Andrew Child, but the new Reacher, and to enjoy it just as much as they've ever enjoyed any of the previous ones. I mean, from my point of view, I might say, I hope they enjoy it even more. <laughs> <laughs> Lee might not agree. But um, we always felt it's not about him or me, it's about Reacher. So getting Reacher to sound the same was, was the thing. And that was actually made even harder, by the fact that I'd written nine other books where I was deliberately, with every single word I wrote, trying not to sound like my brother. You know, I was determined that my career was going to be independent, that I was going to stand or fall on my own two feet, and that nothing I wrote would ever sound like it was in any way related to anything that he wrote. So having been firmly entrenched in that method for, I guess, 15 years pretty much, I then suddenly on a dime had to turn around 180 degrees and then make it so that I would sound like him so it's um yeah that that was that was a big challenge
1: of the new book booklist had such a great quote they said quote the mixture of brute force and intellectual problem solving is just right and to me i mean that is the perfect distillation of jack reacher lee was that Kind of what you set out to do over 20 years ago when you created this character—that blend of intellect and brute force.
4: Uh, Yeah, I really wanted to do that. I I uh, was—I remember a review from early on that said, uh, "Reacher is a liberal intellectual with forearms the size of Popeyes." And uh, I thought, yeah, that's what—that's what we want. We want a guy who is uh, physically secure. Um, you know that was a kind of wish fulfillment yeah. thing for me and for everybody i think who who reads it. You can be walking down the street. I remember it well when I was younger when I could stay up late you know i 'd be at a party or something and i 'd be i 'd be walking home at four in the morning or something like that or five o 'clock in the morning and you see, and you see some guy yeah. walking towards you 100 yards away you're just a little bit worried all the time suppose suppose he didn't have to be suppose that it was a billion to one that the guy the next guy around the corner was as good as you physically how would you feel you'd feel really good you'd feel relaxed you'd be feel much happier so that was wish fulfillment for all of us really and then the 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 other thing is i just always loved sherlock holmes you know i love that sleight of hand that an author can have and people love that too they love to think along with the character Uh, that's a huge part of the the appeal i think readers love to see something done really well and so i wanted to to give them some more of that and of course it's very easy from the writer's point of view i figured that out early you know as a kid i'd be reading sherlock holmes And he'd have this thing, you know, he looks out the window and he says, ah, Watson, here's somebody coming to our door, clearly a bricklayer from Shoreditch who's been out of work for nine months. And, you know, he comes up the stairs, Mrs. Hudson shows him in, and yeah, he's a bricklayer from Shoreditch who's been out of work for nine months. And the reader is thrilled (laughs) by the deductive powers. But, of course, Conan Doyle is on both ends of the equation there. In real life, of course, he comes upstairs and, You say, are you a bricklayer from Shoreditch? And he says, no, mate. You know, (laughs) fiction is wonderful for being able to do what you want to do. After 20 plus years of writing,
1: Reacher, I have to imagine you've actually become somewhat of an amateur physician with all you know about how to dislocate a limb or where to kick someone to tear a ligament or where to land a punch Directly on a nerve ending. I mean, Andrew, has Lee become a source of research for any of this stuff? Like, if you have to know exactly where to hit a guy in the solar plexus to get you know this or that result, do you just
5: ask Lee? It, I think it has to come from within. I don't think it's the sort of thing that would work too well if you if you were relaying somebody else's sort of instructions on it i think it has to be something that you that you you feel and that you see and that's a great example of showing how reacher thinks because everybody thinks about the 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 you know the fight scenes and the action in the reacher books but if you look at the scenes carefully you'll see that a lot of the time reacher will spend more time thinking about the the coming confrontation, planning it out, you know, reasoning. You know, the the scene from one shot, for example, um, that that worked really well in the movie was where Reacher goes outside from the diner with the six guys after the woman's come and provoked yeah. the confrontation, and you know, it looks like it's six guys, but Reacher it t- explains to them how it's not really six because two of them will run away and two will hang back and see what happens. You know, so the way that uh, that it breaks down, um, that. There's a lot, you know, the thinking side and the planning and the anticipating is really the most important part, I think. And then, you know, the those details are, are great. I mean, I remember, I think it might even have been die trying possibly quite an early book anyway I remember there was a bit about the best way to give somebody a concussion and um, I remember Lee telling me that you'd read about that in a car magazine when it was telling you about how airbags worked and why it was important to have them positioned in particular places in, in a car you know so interesting stuff like that you can use in a different setting with a different purpose.
1: Well, I want to know how does it change over the years because when, when you start out, you're writing for yourself, but then that grows over time. And something like this, Lee, I mean, the easy thing would have been to end the series and walk away, but instead you felt an obligation to the readers. Is that
4: right? The transition came about because based on my experiences as a, as a reader, I was very afraid of becoming that guy, you know, the author that does the long series and after, you know, maybe eight or 10 books clearly doesn't care anymore. (laughs) Actually, that's going away. I mean, when I look at my contemporaries in the business right now, they are all good and they are all working hard all the time and they're, they're all conscientious and they're really not falling into the trap. But historically, it used to be a terrible thing. Alistair MacLean would be an example. He was just great for, you know, eight books were beyond fantastic. And then he got old and bored and <laughs> drunk and move, moved to tax exile and just started phoning it in. And I I felt awful as a a kid, you know, as a reader. It had been taken away from me. And I promised myself I would never do that, and I never did. But I knew that it was coming. (laughs) Maybe not next year, maybe not the year after, but sooner or later I was going to run out of gas. And so, yeah, it was time to end the series, in my opinion, because I was not going to give the reader an inferior product. Right. But I was really sad about it. You know, I I loved doing it. And I would especially loved the fact that people loved the character. But then I suddenly realized, wait a minute, you idiot. You know a guy who is is like you 15 years ago, you know, still got that energy and creativity and ideas. You know a person like that. I would have not done it with any other collaborator at all. But I figured, Andrew, my actual brother, uh, you know, DNA is the same. Our experiences are the same. The way it's turned out, our personalities are very similar. So I thought, if anybody can find that 5% of madness, it's him yeah. because he's probably got it himself. <laughs> well, Lee, you are also one of those guys who is having a retirement
1: that isn't really a retirement at all. I mean, there's the Reacher TV show. You know, and now, I mean, here you are doing interviews for the new book. Did this change in authors in some way? like kind of give you a second wind?
4: Yeah, I mean, the transition was supposed to be slow. We sort of talked to the publishers about it. And, um, you know, the idea was that over, let's say three books, maybe we did this smooth transition where we started out together and I Mm -hmm. progressively took a step back and Andrew took a step forward. And we're still going to stick to that plan. It's been completely screwed up by the pandemic in certain ways, but I, I will be... Stepping back into total obscurity as soon as I possibly can.
1: (laughs) And Andrew, are you ever wanting this transition to go a little more quickly? Like, you know, Lee, go go have a smoke. I, I got this one from here.
5: Well, it's it's a very funny thing, that, because when we started, I was, one of the things I was most looking forward to was I thought this will just be, you know, it, it's my job, but I get to do it with my brother. It's going to be lovely. And we had anticipated that, you know, because we live three and a half miles apart and we thought, great, you know, we'll be able to sit, you know, uh, sit across the desk, nose to nose, thrash it out, talk things through, you know come up with all the good ideas together. And that lasted for a couple of months. But then when the pandemic came, we wound up working completely remotely, which um, in a way was brilliant because without us expecting this really, what, what we realized was that if we are sitting down in the same room, you know, imagine, you know, anybody doing it, two people, you're going to present something that you've written to the other person. You can't help but say, well, this is why I did it. This is how I think it works. This is why I think it's important. This is what I think it will lead to. You know, you've got to preface it. You've got to support it and justify it. So then when the other person reads it, they've got all of that stuff in their mind. You Mm -hmm. can't unhear it. And so that's not like a, a, uh, someone who buys the book that's not the way they read it you know they they read it without any preconception yeah, yeah. so when we went to working remotely and we would just email back and forth it was actually magnificent because all that you did was open the email there was a document with some words on and those words worked or they didn't and if they didn't we were very honest with each other and, and said no uh, we need more work on that and so um we had the same experience as somebody buying the book at the bookstore. You open it and the words either work for you or they don't. So that part of the experience was, was great. Because we don't have that experience of sitting down together every day working together and it's just working, you're still working on your own in a way. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally happy to just um, pick, up, pick up the baton and run with it. Absolutely.
4: Yeah, I would say what Andrew said. Yeah, I mean, literary wise, it's been a benefit. Uh, because all we've had is the words the same as as the reader socially it has been a terrible disappointment because you know we don't get to hang out andrew's wife tasha fabulous cook i was (laughs) to get there in the morning have a whole bunch of cinnamon buns and muffins and a pot of coffee and all of that and uh so none of the social things happen but i think Actually, the books came out better because of it. Well, there you go. This is silver lining. (laughs) Thank you, Eric. Great speaking
5: with you. Thanks, Eric. It was a pleasure as always.
1: All right, Steve. Next up is Wanda M. Morris, and she is the debut author of All Her Little Secrets. And this book is getting all kinds of attention, and it's very well-deserved. Wanda is a lawyer and this novel is set in the world of high powered corporate law with a woman at the center of a scandal and a murder who's also trying to keep her family secrets hidden at all costs when her life is kind of falling apart around her. I think at this point, a law degree is probably more likely to get you published than an MFA in creative writing. There's so many lawyers turned
2: writers, aren't there? Oh yeah, well, I mean, they've got all the inside information. Right. There's all the verisimilitude uh, to the stories that they're able to tell from a legal perspective. Um, They have to know how to write. And I'm sure that they are tapping into a well of experiences that, you know, mere mortals like you and I don't have access to. But Eric, I'm curious. You said debut author and it's got me wondering, how many debut authors do you think have been featured on this show? Because I feel like it's a lot.
1: Oh, it's been a whole lot. Yeah. The publishing world loves a debut. And I We have to have had over a hundred at this point, I would think. I remember those uh, innocent days of the the debut novel. Seems so long ago. I don't at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we love a debut author here on Writer Types. And your debut, Wanda, is All Her Little Secrets. And Elise, in this book, she certainly has some secrets. Uh, <laughs> the big secret is threatened right there in chapter one when, I, I I don't think this is a spoiler for anyone, her boss that who she is having an affair with, she sure. discovers has been killed in his office. She makes this decision to, to protect herself and, and her other secrets, which you know is the downfall of so many characters and frankly, so many real life people, right? What? Why do we think that we can constantly outrun our past?
6: <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think because we put on these new facades and believe, yep, I'm nice, I'm fresh, I'm new, and here I go off into the world. And I think that's exactly what Elise Littlejohn was attempting to do. Um, Everything from the way she lived to the way she dressed um, to her educational pedigree. She put on a new set of clothes and decided that was a different person and um, she was off to live a different life.
1: And yet it, it keeps reaching out from, from her past to, to maybe drag her back in. I think that's, that's something that I've, I found, uh, you know, for a character who's very different from myself, it certainly is something that I think is very relatable is someone who, like you say, she's trying to, she's trying to raise her station in life. She's trying to, you know, uplift herself. And yet uh, there's always those ties to, to your upbringing, right? That you can't escape.
6: Exactly. I I think that's a through line conflict in in the book is that for all the effort that she puts into trying to be this different person, deep down inside, she really knows who she is and she really loves those people who are in the past that she attempts to to keep buried. And so it's, it's a real torment for her, I think. I like to think that we all kind of have, you know, maybe not secrets quite as dark as Elise's, but, right. you know, we all have something in our past that, you know, whether we regret or we wish we'd done differently. And the hope is that we can start anew.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I was just helping my daughter with a, a project in her English class where they're talking about the hero's journey and they were talking about, uh, you know, heroes going back to Odysseus and now mm-hmm. the rise of of sort of anti-heroes or at least characters with with flaws and I thought it was interesting that like I mean literally right from page 1 you sort of set up Elise as someone who it would be very easy to paint her as this woman who has, she's achieved so much. She's got this incredible education. That's this fabulous job. And yet you start her off with, she kind of knows that she's making a bad decision with this affair she's having. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. So r- right off the bat, you set her off with, with, with this, with some character flaw. you know, she's going to be a complicated woman right from page one. That, that, that w- was that an important thing for you to do is give her these different levels and not have her just be the woman who made good.
6: Absolutely. Um, My attempt with her was to show that even though she was incredibly smart, because she was, she had, you know, this educational pedigree. She was witty. She was charming. But like people in real life can be very smart, but still make some incredibly bad decisions. And, you know, her decisions, or at least what I try to convey to the reader is that her decisions, good, bad, and otherwise, stem from um, something that happened back in her past. And not only is she trying to run from it, I think that she's also trying to grapple with that. And so yeah. she looks for things in, for example, a bad relationship, a bad, you know, affair. Or she looks across the hall at her neighbor and wishes that, gosh, I wish I had had someone like that in my life. Um, and so she's always searching for what she lacked as she was growing up.
1: All oh, right. Well, aren't we all?
6: <laughs> exactly. Hello. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, you, you set this in Atlanta where you live and in a world of lawyers, in which you travel yourself and you know for me having never been through that experience i can only imagine that you brought a lot of your own life experience as an african-american woman with a law degree Elise finds herself often on the outside often the only woman of color around unfortunately in a lot of ways i think a lot of this probably hits very close to home right
6: uh, indeed it does i've had those experiences where like elise in the book you walk into a room or a party. Um, that's work related and you start to, you know, count the other women in the room or the other, you know, black and brown people. And, you know, I I feel certain that white males don't typically do that on the regular. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it is something or you're in a meeting and, you know, you make a suggestion that is, you know, roundly dismissed. And five minutes later, a white male makes the same suggestion, almost verbatim, and everybody applauds him for it. Mm -hmm. And you think, wait a minute, are we in the same room? Like, what just (laughs) happened here? And so, you know, for me, I had to, you know, whenever I was in those situations, I had to tell myself, you know, hey, I pay for my law degree, just like everybody else sitting around this table. And I deserve to have a voice. I deserve to have a say in whatever decisions that we're making. Even though I'm dealing in, you know, a fictional world, I don't think that it is unlike what is typically seen now. I I read a Fortune magazine article a few months back, and only three percent of executive management in Fortune 500 is black. Wow, that is incredibly, incredibly low. And when you think about it, it's also quite sad because, uh, you know, decisions start at the top. And so if everyone looks alike in the executive suite, you're going to get thinking that's very much alike.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, at least she goes to great lengths to protect her brother, uh, often to her own detriment. I mean, family can have that sway over us sometimes can't i mean this is why i've a lot of times i've i read a story like this and i feel a little bit grateful that my family isn't that close if you know if any of my sisters i would i would have to say you're on your own kid <laughs> but no one can drag you down like family right it's
6: <laughs> uh, i like the way you put that yeah elise has this really close relationship with her brother and man it it always seems to be the bane of her existence, unfortunately, but she loves him, you know, dearly. And, you know, despite the body count in this book um, and all the murder and mayhem, I really did set out to write a family story. You know, this story really is about love and loss and, you know, resilience and redemption and all those things that you find in family. And so I wanted to explore, you know, the family we choose and the family that chooses us. And so you kind of see Elise in, you know, these situations with her, you know, biological family. And then you see her in this office situation where executive management refers to everyone as family, hmm. but they treat everyone far from it. Right. And so I wanted to explore those themes um, in this book.
1: What is it about lawyers that you keep turning to writing mysteries? I mean, I think, you know, of all the people I've interviewed, second maybe only to newspaper reporters, is, is there something about the job that you're always thinking of this? You know, it's a, it's a bit of an adversarial job. You've got, you know, you're trying to choose right and wrong. You've got, you know, what, what is it about being a lawyer that makes so many turn to writing these kind of books?
6: You know what? I think for me, when I read a book, I love a good secret. In a book, Mm. a secret where the author drops breadcrumbs along the way. And I'm following you all the way to page 300 if you do that well. And I think lawyers, that's kind of the currency that they deal in. They deal in secrets because they have confidentiality rules and Ah. all these ethical rules. And that's one of the things that I tried to set up in this book is that Elise is caught in this quagmire because she's kind of got this moral dilemma and protecting her family and her secrets. But she's also got this professional dilemma, this ethical dilemma about what she has to do as a lawyer to protect her, her ethical standing and protect her license to practice as a lawyer. And so lawyers kind of deal in this currency of secrecy and, you know, making sure that the facts are presented a certain way. And for me, I love secrets in a book. So I wanted to explore it.
1: All right, there we go. I, I, we finally have the answer as to why, because I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's that's a that's a great analysis of yeah. what to, what those two jobs you, share in common.
6: You might have to ask John Grisham what he thinks, but <laughs> that's kind of you know my newbie author. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, look for uh, for a new author. This book has been the talk of the town for quite a while now. Uh, you know, and as we approach release day, we're getting very close now. I feel like your pre-release couldn't have gone any better it's been on lists it's but you've got you, your list of blurbs is very impressive i must say and uh, this has been a long time coming to this moment o- over a decade that you've been working on this book and shopping it and seeking an agent all of those things that that go into this overnight success that you're now experiencing <laughs> now that you're on the verge of release are you someone who can slow down and enjoy the moment or are you already on to the next thing and focused on the future
6: gosh i am trying to savor all of this because to your point i've waited so long for it i still am like a kid in a candy shop i'll i'll see a blurb or you know i'll see a list and i'm like oh my god that's my name you know (laughs) like who's that it really really is an amazing surreal experience and I don't take a minute of it for granted because it has been so long coming. I mean, between my doubts and, you know, the other folks who turned it down, their doubts too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time coming, but I, I don't take a minute of it for granted. Oh, good for you. I'm glad. Well,
1: and look, now you've been on Writer Types, you, you, you've made it to the top well, of the mountain. Bucket frankly.
6: list, check. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, my final guest is William Boyle. He's the darling of modern day noir fiction and his latest Brooklyn set novel is Shoot the Moonlight Out and it follows his hot streak of these complex characters living lives of desperation and usually making terrible mistakes. I, he really is one of the best out there right now. And Steve, we chatted with him briefly in person at uh, Bauschakon one year and William is one of those writers, Like, it's really been fun to sort
2: of track his rise as we've seen him come up, hasn't it? Yeah, I actually remember that. He was one of those, like, let's just ambush that dude as he's walking down the entryway of the hotel in in Florida, right? Is that where we spoke with him? Yes. I I love ambushing authors and just spitting ridiculous questions and terrible dad puns at them and just kind of recording their reaction. I
1: I think any author is still a little bit surprised that anyone wants to talk to them. So everyone has always been so nice and so accommodating.
2: It's three authors standing there with our phones out uh, with the voice memo recording all kinds of shocks that we're willing to talk to each other. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so William, I am speaking to you now from your home in Oxford, Mississippi, and yet Shoot the Moonlight Out is another book that is what I will say is aggressively Brooklyn. <laughs> you have not been able to leave that town behind, have you?
3: No, no, yeah. I don't, I don't see myself leaving it behind on the page and anyway, way. So where I'm from, it's it's where I kind of return to when I sit down to write pretty much every time.
1: Just unconsciously or is it a plan that you're trying you're trying to exercise demons from your past or it's just what you know. So that's what you go to.
3: Well, I mean, I think it's what I'm haunted by, um, mm. not not just what I know. I mean, it's it's uh, it's the place I know best, certainly. But um, it's definitely the the stuff I'm haunted by and the the stuff that when I, again, when I sit down and I've kind of got a blank page in front of me, that's just where I kind of automatically go and return the the streets and the, the, you know, just the the places that I, I know and remember and, and and also invent there's kind of a mythological version of Brooklyn in my mind. I think that kind of subsumes me.
1: And then invariably they lead to these dark, crime stories Does that should i be worried about your past
3: <laughs> no no i mean i think i'm just you know that's kind of my way into um the angle i put on exploring kind of melancholy and heartbreak and you know the, the kind of unspecific sadness that i associate with with being home with uh growing up <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's uh, if, if I delve any deeper into that, I'll have to charge you a hundred dollars an hour. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Shoot the Moonlight Out It has such a great tangled web of characters who start out seemingly on different paths, but then they sort of slowly come together by the threads that connect them, even if they are unaware of these threads connecting them. I can imagine the writing of this book involved maybe a wall of note cards and different colored strings between them so you could keep it all straight or, or did it flow pretty naturally?
3: Uh, yeah no I don't do anything like that really. I think I, I sit down at the beginning and I have uh, you know kind of cast of characters in mind or I start to assemble a cast of characters and usually there are a couple or a few um, and that opens up a little bit and then I, I kind of just do a a breakdown kind of chapter by chapter breakdown of, of what I what I want to uh, accomplish but I also like to leave room for discovery and exploration and and wandering within within the world of the story so yeah I mean I, I don't really plan it in that in, in that kind of crazy way I don't I don't enjoy that part of it I, I mean I like I like having things figured out so I can cut off trouble at the past but I'm not somebody who's who's got a big board in front of me with cards and strings. And uh, well, things.
1: it's it's impressive then because on this one it, there definitely is a lot of uh, there's a lot of characters that overlap and then oh, oh, you discover oh my gosh it's his sister and all you know these sort of little discoveries <laughs> along the way so it's, it was great that you were able to sort of hold that and and keep it in check or I don't know maybe this was a, you know 10 revisions in when it all finally straightened out. <laughs>
3: Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of that has to do with I'm I'm definitely a a bit of a coward when it comes to time. So I could imagine um, if I was setting this novel over many years, I I could imagine having to do that level of planning. But because the novel, uh, for the most part, you know, there's there's a prologue that's set in 1996. And then the bulk of the novel is set in over a few weeks in June 2001. Um, So, you know, it's pretty compressed time period. So um, ultimately, it wasn't hard for me to keep track of. And, you know, anything that uh, I did lose track of got smoothed over or dealt with in revision. Well, you
1: have uh, that most coveted status of any crime writer. You are big in France. Uh, (laughs) What have you heard from French readers that they latch onto about these very Brooklyn stories?
3: They like place-driven stuff, for sure. I mean, it's just an incredible literary culture. And so they're, they're definitely drawn to place stories, um, and, and they're drawn to character driven stuff and they're drawn to dark stuff. They have darker tastes, um, I think than general American audience. So I, that's kind of all the stuff I do. And I think that's, that's probably accounts for some of the, the interest in my books there. You know, the, the fact that I'm writing so specifically and so in depth about a place and kind of creating a. Mythology of my my version of Brooklyn, my Brooklyn, um, but also you know character driven stories, kind of rooted in a love of noir and and seventies uh, crime movies, and you know just all all the things that they respond to in American culture and rock and roll. You know, I mean, they have similar tastes to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> ultimately, um, you know, I can go to France. Uh, this the title of this book, "Shoot the Moonlight Out," comes from a Garland Jeffries song. Garland Jeffries is an artist I really love. And, and not a lot of people here really know him as, as much as they should, but I go to France and of course everybody knows him. They they like good stuff generally. Um, so I'm I'm glad that they respond to my my books.
1: Well, uh, the, somewhere around here on my shelves, I have uh, my Broken River edition of Graves End. So uh, I've, I've been on board from the start <laughs> with your work, sir. I, Thanks, man, I, thank in, you. In that time, has your writing taken the path that you thought it would when you started?
3: You know, I mean, I didn't have uh, have a path really laid out for myself. I didn't really have models. Um, you know I didn't I didn't grow up around writers, certainly. I didn't grow up around readers, even. Um, you know, so I kind of came to this all through just as a fan, you know, I always knew i I was a writer and I wanted to write and spent a long time figuring out what stories I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell them. I think once I wrote Graves in, though, I kind of had figured something out and I knew that that was going to be, be the beginning of what I hoped would be kind of a continuing mythology or something, or a world of stories um, rooted in the place I knew best. And there were a couple of times along the way where I thought about straying from that path a little bit more, but I, I, Either it didn't work out, or I I just didn't, Um, and I kind of had figured out this uh, way of doing things that worked for me.
1: Yeah, Uh, don't fix it if it ain't broke. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, it sounds like you had that moment where you really did recognize when you found your authorial voice.
3: Yeah, I mean, it took a long time. You know, I published Gravesend in in my 30, 33 or something. Uh, I mean, I've I've loved writing my whole life, but I went through a, a lot of different. Versions of what I wanted to do with writing. I mean, I love film, so early on, I thought I wanted to write, try to write screenplays, and bailed on that pretty quickly. And thought I wanted to write poetry, and realized I was not good at that. And um, you know, but by the time I was eighteen or nineteen, I knew that I wanted to write fiction. Um, so it's been a while, and it took me really from then until until Gravesend to to really get it down and define that and. Um, yeah, I had a lot of stuff in place, I think, early on in terms of the characters I was writing about and the place I was writing about, but other stuff needed to, to fall in around it, and I needed to figure out a lot.
1: Well, you've you mentioned that you're you're a film fan, and that's that was my background. I mean, that's where, where my writing started was, was in screenplays, and so I wonder, like, I always talk to other authors about who their other, you know, influences were in, in novels, but what about filmmakers for you? Or is there sort of a filmmaker or, or some directors that you feel sort of a stylistic relationship to? And maybe you can count as influences as much as other
3: novelists? Oh, yeah. I mean, many, many, many. You know, I'm, I'm as, as inspired by, by film as literature and music. Um, you know, I try to watch a movie a day if I can. I, you know, I'm really something I kind of need to be creative, I think. Um, so there's, there's a ton, I mean, for the purposes of, of my, my books, I'd say probably Robert Altman and Alan Rudolph are two of the bigger influences in terms of just opening up ideas about ensemble, big ensemble casts and, and structure. Uh, that was That was stuff that really pulled me in. And, you know, it was a way I wanted to tell stories. John Cassavetes, I love, you know, I mean, that's, that's a huge, his films are a huge influence on me. A lot of classic stuff, obviously too, but then I think stuff that probably maybe people wouldn't necessarily expect, the, the director, writer, director, Lynn Shelton, you know, mm. who passed away. Um, she's one of my favorites. And I think, you know, a film like her last film, sort of Trust had a, a kind of big influence on what I wanted to do in this book. Yeah, um, also a big ensemble cast. So there's there's just there's tons of people and tons of directors, but also tons of actors um, that inspire me and that that make me excited to just sit down and write.
1: Yeah, I, I always think it's interesting. how I think sometimes authors get too hung up on only talking about the other books that influence them without acknowledging. Because I, I do think you're right. I think all of us get so many storytelling cues from a, a great film and I, to me it's always it's it's such a great reminder of efficient storytelling and you know you you tell these fully fleshed characters and these these fully realized stories in two hours yeah just a reminder like i don't need to write a 600 page manuscript in order to get my idea across you know
3: right yeah and and you know i think there's there's also an element for me that it's, it's sometimes just really instructive to learn from other art forms i mean you know i i when people ask me what my influences are, a lot of the time I'm primarily talking about films and music um, and not talking about books. It's not that books aren't, um, they are in a a major way, but I think a lot of times when I'm sitting down to kind of figure out the the sound of a novel or the tone of a novel, it's the the records I'm listening to, it's the, the movies I'm watching that are informing that um, in the most significant way.
1: And it's a lot easier to put on a three-minute Garland Jeffries song to sort of get you in a headspace than it is to read, reread an entire, you know, James Elroy novel or something.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally. And film too. I mean, you can rewatch, you know, you can rewatch. I mean, I, Detour is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I could watch Detour six times in a day. You know, that is a different level of engagement with with a text, you know, that I, I really love. <laughs> Well, excellent.
1: Well, congratulations on shoot the moonlight out. It's uh, it's uh, another in this long line. You are really establishing yourself as uh, one of the major voices in uh, in this dark noir fiction. So, uh, I, well, I, speaking as a fan, I, I'm with you. Don't uh, don't change it. Don't I, I'm I don't not interested in your San Francisco novel. Or just keep it in Brooklyn. <laughs> Let's keep doing
3: what you're doing. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. It was great, great catching up, great talking to you, and I appreciate it.
1: Steve, that's the end of our interviews, but uh, I did have an ulterior motive in having you join me today, and it's time for us
2: to announce... Wait, are you actually my brother? (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, okay. Well, go on then. I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) That's
1: not the big news. The big news is that this is the last episode of Writer Types. It is time to end the show. What? (laughs) No,
2: this is it. This is how you tell me? I mean, Uh, at least I'm doing it in person. That's some shocking news. This is a fantastic crime podcast that you have kept trucking along and doing phenomenal work after your partner in crime abandoned you. And and now you're (laughs) telling me that this thing that I could continue to be proud of and take credit for, even though I had to do no work, is not gonna exist anymore? (laughs) Yeah, that's how it's going. I'm pulling the plug. Oh, boy. Well, how do you feel about it?
1: I feel really good. I I have enjoyed doing the show immensely over the years. I'm incredibly
2: proud of what we created along the way. And I, I leave with no regrets. It couldn't get any better than that. Then I guess if you have to make a tough decision, you should feel confident and good about it, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I believe me, I've I've threatened in private to to end the show before, but it's, it's never felt like the right time. But this this feels like the right time. Uh, you know, I tried to look back and, and sort of look at what we've managed to accomplish. And some of the numbers were hard to even figure out because they were so big. Uh, I mean, we have done over 400 interviews, hmm. which seems nuts, mm-hmm. huge bestsellers indie authors, we had debuts, we had nonfiction, we had horror writers, a little bit of everything. And one thing that I know we talked about at the very beginning when we were just deciding to do the show and coming up and trying to figure out what it was gonna be and what we could feel passionate about that we would be able to take on the heavy workload that is making a podcast. And I'm very proud that we kept to our guns and we really kept an equal balance of male and female writers. We featured so many writers of color, LGBT authors, we kept our doors open to anyone with a book that we felt people should know about, no matter what the size of your publisher or if you were self-published. I, you know, My only regret is that I didn't have time to talk to everybody that I wanted to talk to. There was just not enough time to get to all the books. So for anybody that I did not get to talk to that, who, who pitched to be on the show, I apologize. I wish I could have talked to you. And uh, that's, that's the only thing that, uh, that I
2: leave with a, a slight twinge of regret about. Well, there are limits to space and time, Eric, and you are also a father and a husband, and uh, you have a job, and you also managed to crank out 22 novels a year, so anybody uh, would (laughs) have to understand if you couldn't quite squeeze another 800 people onto the show as you were uh, walking out the door.
1: Well, let's hope so. (laughs) And let's not forget the accents, Steve. Over the years, we have featured authors, let's, let's get this, from Canada... England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Germany, Australia, Iceland, Sweden, and Sri Lanka. Two or three of those countries
2: aren't even real. You're just like making stuff up. <laughs> well, Eric, you, uh, you keep saying we, which is incredibly generous. And though I am so proud of what we created together, I would not dare take uh, even 20% of the credit for all the work you did while we were a team. And all the incredible work you did after I left the show and you just kept soldiering on and it just got better and better. And when I listened in, I was like, man, you know, he's he's doing all the things that I held him back on. Um, (laughs) So I think you deserve a huge round of applause for all that you've done solo and that we did together. But I I, I don't this isn't a we this is a you did this all the way through and I was there for part of the ride
1: well i i would not be here had we not come up with this together nor would i have had the courage to start it on my own without a, a, a partner in crime uh, to do this i mean i just i have to say thank you for starting this crazy thing with me for helping me get it off the ground and I honestly i getting to spend time with you doing this and and just our friendship in general it really is one of the highlights of my writing life i mean of all the things that i've accomplished in publishing I I the, it's the friendships and the relationships that I take away and yours is one of my most prized relationships. I'll always be enormously proud of what we built here and the you know the episodes will still be available. People can still find them. All the interviews are still completely relevant even if the books are a few years old. It was worth all the time that we spent, all of the the effort, the the money that we lost along the way cuz <laughs> this thing has never been profitable you know we we talked about should we pick favorites should we do some sort of a top 10 and it's just it's too hard to choose favorites we don't want to we don't want to lift anybody above anybody else they were, like literally we enjoyed every interview that we did on its own merits for different
2: reasons and and we just had some amazing conversations that we never would have had had it not been for the show i could not agree more eric the the that sentiment is definitely mutual the friendship that you and i built and out of that friendship the show that came out of it and the conversations we still have, even though I'm not on the show anymore, mean the world to me. All right. Well, you know, Steve, uh, as long as this is our last episode ever, we
1: cannot leave without talking one last time to the Malmans. So here they are all the way from Minnesota. Dan and Kate Malman, welcome back to the show.
0: Hooray! <laughs> I, wish, I wish that was the intro you gave us like for the whole uh, the whole time we had the show. That was like a Johnny Carson curtain opening. <laughs> Dan, with the current references, like usual. If we could wrap this up, I have to go to bed soon. <laughs> and of course, it is just six oh four in the evening. But the
1: reason we asked you to join us today uh, is just to say thank you. You guys have been with us from the beginning, and throughout this whole crazy run, we could not have done it without you. And we just wanted to bring you on one last time to say thanks for all of the great book recommendations. Thanks for all of the time you spent. And just thanks for
0: being friends.
7: Aww. Thanks, guys.
0: That's super awesome. We absolutely were so grateful for the time that you gave us and the laughs and the books and the pandemic. It was all just incredible.
7: Well, I mean, Steve did leave and then pandemic happened, so...
2: The timing is suspicious. I never left you guys. This this is weird. I, I feel like this is some kind of alternate reality. What are you talking about? Yeah, he's right there. Maybe the Steve was the friends we made along the way. Oh,
1: I
0: think
2: that's the moral of this very special last episode of Writer Types.
1: I was hoping you were going to turn out to be a ghost.
2: <laughs> that's been your wish since we met.
1: Well, so okay, Dan and Kate, how how has your time been? How how have you? Let's do a little exit interview. Oh. How how would you rate your time on Writer Types? <laughs>
7: God. Well, I, I mean, I'd give it, I'd give it a nine. It would be a 10 if we could have gotten the time zone thing figured out between Minnesota and California, like earlier on.
1: Well, it's okay. So over your time uh, reviewing books for us, do you, is there anyone, a, a specific author, a specific book that you found uh, during uh, doing the job that you think you maybe wouldn't have found otherwise?
7: I actually have a notebook that I keep all of my reviews in. I put all my notes. So I could actually like go back and like, oh yeah, I read that and I read that. Um, And I found two authors that I don't know that I would have necessarily picked up on without having the opportunity to do the book reviews. One is Lola on Fire by uh, Rio Ewers. Yeah, Rio Ewers. That's how I've been pronouncing it. I wouldn't have found him or the book without the podcast. And I really, really enjoyed the, the book. I mean, it was something that I had never read before. Totally new to me, author. So that was great. Um, and the other one was Mia Manansala was an author that I kind of like mm. had an awareness of, but I think the having the opportunity to do the book review was a good opportunity to like force me to read her book, um, Arsenic and Adobo, and I really enjoyed that one as well.
0: Dan, how about you? Jar of Hearts, uh, Jennifer Hillier. That was one of the times when I uh, I put on my uh, big boy reviewer pants and uh, and messaged an acquaintance, uh, more of a stranger than an acquaintance, and said, hey, could I have a copy of your book for uh, writer types? And um, not only did I find a new favorite author, but Hillier just became such a cool person to know and a great mm-hmm. friend. Um, and then we got to be to meet in real life uh, at various conventions and everything. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I just want, I'm, I'm, my memory's being jogged here. Is Jar of Hearts the book that you threw in the freezer? It sure is. Yeah, this book... Freaked me out so bad that, uh, like Joey from Friends, I threw it in the freezer. Well, I'm glad that we could bring these authors into your lives. Yes. yes. And that you could bring those books into the lives of our listeners. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Super great.
1: Yes, that's right. Because pe- people have been listening to you this whole time. I don't know if you know that.
0: <laughs> what about you guys? What books did you discover?
1: Uh, that's a fair question. And it's it's so hard to try to narrow that down because I think especially in the Last probably two years, because when we started, it was just pulling from our friends, right? We, it was people that we'd know, people that we'd met. Hey, do you want to do us a favor and come be on the show? Uh, and then once we got on the radar of publicists and stuff, I, I keep getting sent, you know, way too many books that I could never have the time to read. But I've just been really happy that I've gotten a chance to get exposed to a lot of different authors. You know, like you say, Kate. I mean. I think that the amount of cozies that have been sent our way and that we didn't turn our noses up at him. It's like, like you say, it's like, it's not really my thing, but I've been exposed to a lot of really great authors with some, some really fun books uh, in, in that whole genre that I was not really that well versed in. Uh, and then getting a chance to talk to a lot of authors, you know, I think of someone, an author like Robin Geigel, whose debut novel by way of sorrow is, is probably something that could have easily just been, marginalized and said, Oh, put this on the LGBT shelf. And, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't find it if you were just looking for a mystery. Sure. So that's been one of the, my favorite things about the show is being able to take a book like that and, you know, show it to a wider audience and say, Hey, this, if, if you like mysteries, if you like thrillers, you're going to like this stuff, you're going to like Dharma Keller's, you know, Jinx Baloo series, you, you're going to dig it. it. They don't have to be shelved in a certain section. Uh, you know, I think that's, mm-hmm.
2: that's a, a fun byproduct of doing the show. When I uh, was thinking back about my time on writer types and a lot of the books and authors and cool people and events and awesome experiences that I was exposed to, I connect it really strongly with discovering and uh, falling in love with the writing of Blake Crouch. Like that, I think yeah. Blake Crouch oh, is the yeah, author yeah. for me that during that stretch, Dark Matter and Recursion in particular, and then. Getting to interview Blake, uh, I think we were at BoucherCon, right, Eric? Is that when yeah. we did that? Yeah. My fa- my favorite memory about that is, uh, he was one, he was really cool and open and it was a great conversation, but two, we were so paranoid that we weren't going to record it that I'm pretty sure we had four recording devices going, like <laughs> both of our phones on Memo and then like a laptop with a podcast and then like um, and my, my iPad, just to make sure that we were going to actually record it.
7: From uh interviewing perspective, who was like the big, like, whale that you got that you were like super excited that you couldn't believe you got the opportunity to interview
0: the big get
7: yeah who's your big get
1: you know we uh, we had a few definitely i think the you know when in one weekend we talked to lee child ian rankin and lawrence block i think and i think that was like all in one afternoon Mm -hmm. that's when i was like oh this is this is going well this is
2: pretty cool
7: (laughs) we're doing okay
2: I think, too, on the flip side of that, like one of the things that I remember when we were initially coming up with the concept for the podcast, when Eric and I were, I think we were at a cafe outside a bookstore in like Orange County. And uh, one of the things we talked about was like supporting uh, lesser known authors, supporting our friends who are published authors, supporting authors that we just love who don't maybe get enough support. And I, I'm pretty proud of our ability on this show to also support that level of authors, midlist, people you might not have heard of, indie published uh, I think we did a really good job of balancing the, some of the major names and some of the major publishing houses with with indie publishers and talking about short fiction and talking about the entire ecosystem that crime fiction and mystery fiction has to offer. And I I think there's it's a feather in in all of our caps that we were able to support those people in that way as well. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah for well, that's, sure. That's the uh, more water lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Well. All right, Dan and Kate. Let's not drag this out. It's not a goodbye. It's just a so long and And we can continue these talks and and I, for one, am telling you, don't stop
2: telling me about books. if you've got something that you really love, let me know about it we'll do We'll do yeah, and we'll make sure and share your email addresses very publicly so people can also ask you for recommendations there.
7: That would that's a be good idea awesome. <laughs> and, Thanks, be- Steve. and
2: because we're polite Minnesotans, we'll answer them all
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> well. Dan and Kate, it's been an incredible pleasure. This has been always one of the highlights of of doing an episode is when I know I get to talk to you guys. uh, And I I value our friendship and I feel like it's only grown deeper through doing the show. And that's one thing I really appreciate. And uh, I really look forward to talking with you soon, which we will do whether we broadcast it to people or not. Love you guys. Thank
7: you so much for the invite to be part of this. Bye-bye.
1: We can't leave without thanking all of the authors who took the time to talk to us, especially in the early days when we were nobodies and we had some really, really big names that agreed to be on the show, which was really helped put us on the map, so we're incredibly grateful to every author who spoke to us over the years. Thank you so much. Yeah, all the publishers, the publicists, the the indie authors and stuff, people, people who sent books. I mean, look, it has to be said, the biggest perk of doing the show is I've gotten four years of getting free books just sent to me. That's been pretty amazing.
2: Yeah. I do know you love books and I know that's a huge perk, but I mean, and to the fans too, right? Like the people who got into this show early and vocally supported it and as silly as it sounds retweeting or saying nice things about us or leaving reviews, every one of those things gave us a little extra energy to keep pushing forward, especially when we were creating this thing and your support and the nice notes we got and the emails and the comments we heard in person at BoucherCon, I mean, it was really touching and it always really meant a lot to me and you. And I just think it needs to be acknowledged because really without listeners, what's a podcast? Exactly. All right, Steve. Well, it's
1: been a a great run. Uh, it's, it's sad to see it go, but uh, like I say, we, we, I think we both leave with, with no regrets. We're proud of what we've accomplished. And, uh, so one last time for everyone. Thanks for listening.